David, thank you very much. And uh, may I uh, encourage you to turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 9. We've been looking through Matthew chapter 9 over these uh, last three, and this is the fourth week uh, looking through this uh, fascinating chapter, a chapter that I guess many of you have looked at before and probably felt that you knew, but uh, certainly as I've studied it, I've been uh, learning all sorts of things. Matthew 9, page 974. Does it make um, any difference at all if we call that piece of furniture over there a table or an altar? Does it matter a jot if you refer to me as a priest or a minister? Will it make any difference at all if we call this building a church or the house of God? Aren't they just words? Does it really matter? Should we get upset about it? 450 years ago in Britain, many men were burnt at the stake because they dared to preach against the errors of Roman Catholic doctrine. The worst of it, as many of you will know, came under the reign of Queen Mary, or Bloody Mary as she became known because of the amount of people who were martyred during her sovereignty. You can read about the death of many of those killed during her reign in Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is a book that all should have on their bookshelf. Let me just mention three people tonight who died at the hand of, uh, well, if not Mary, Mary's regime. John Rogers was one of them, educated at Cambridge, so he was no fool. Uh, In a sermon, he warned people to beware of the pestilence of popery, that is, following the teaching of Rome and of the Pope. He warned of the pestilence of popery, idolatry and superstition. And from that moment on, the state looked for opportunity to seize him. Eventually he was called to answer for his doctrine and under extreme pressure and knowing that his life depended on how he answered, he remained faithful to Christ in the Gospel and shortly after he was burnt to ashes. Better known perhaps are the stories of bishops Ridley and Latimer. Do you know those names? You ought to if you're Christian. There are two more men who also stood against the teaching of Rome And as a result, they too were taken to be burnt at a stake. As a bundle of lighted sticks were laid at Ridley's feet, Latimer said to him, also about to be burned, Latimer said to him, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. When Ridley saw the flames coming towards him, he cried with a wonderful loud voice, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. And Latimer cried as vehemently on the other side, O Father of heaven, receive my soul. And moments later they were both burnt to death. But why were these men and many of them dying and what were they dying for? Well, very simply, they were dying for the gospel. They died because the gospel had been corrupted by the established church of the time. They died because they believed the doctrine of Rome took people to hell. These men and others like them taught people not to call the communion table an altar. They taught people not to relate to the minister as a priest. And they taught people not to believe in purgatory and many other things as well. And if you think that those issues seem insignificant and just a matter of semantics, it's only words, don't be fooled. These men knew that it was a matter of life and death, of eternal life and eternal death for those who followed one way or the other. And for them, 
they were prepared to stake their own lives on it. And it is that same issue that we have before us here this evening in Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. You see, as we consider then over these next 20 minutes, uh, these verses, if the thought pops into your head that these things don't really matter, let me ask you please to remember Rogers, Ridley and Latimer and others being burnt at the stake so that we might know the truth of the gospel. If you were here last week, you'll remember how the disciples of John the Baptist couldn't understand why Jesus' disciples didn't fast. Look at verse 14. John's disciples came and asked Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? Jesus' point, as we saw last week, is fairly straightforward, but it's wonderfully liberating. There is no place for fasting as an expression of the need to be reconciled to God once Jesus has come. Because in Jesus, I am reconciled to God. Jesus is, as it says in verse 15, the bridegroom, a title in the Old Testament given to God himself. In Christ, I have met God. My sin is dealt with. And so there is no need to fast for my sin anymore. Indeed, to fast for sin when Jesus has come is to be pushing Jesus to one side and saying, either I don't need you or what you have done is not really quite enough, is it? But in Christ, we believe God has done it all. This was the great watchword and cry of the reformers. As the author Philip Yancey in recent times puts it, there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and there's nothing I can do to make him love me less. That is the wonderful gospel, the gospel of grace, of God freely giving me everything in Christ, leaving me with nothing to do. I don't need to fast or do anything else to bring me into God's presence. Oh, we sang it at the beginning of the service in these great words from uh, Philip Townend. In Christ alone my hope is found. In Christ alone. Now I know a good number here this evening know this truth, that we are saved by trusting in Christ alone. And yet please hear this. Just like the followers of John the Baptist here in verse 14, evangelical Christians today try to make themselves right with God by keeping God's law. We will always be tempted to do that because our hearts are so sinful, our hearts will always be moving away from the glorious gospel of grace. Which is why it's good to keep reading the Bible again and again and even if you don't read something new and read things you already know, it will be doing you good because it will be dragging you back from your propensity to move away from the gospel. Now you see, when I say that evangelical Christians are tempted to do something else to make them right with God, I'm thinking of people who have a testimony about how they became a Christian. I'm thinking of people who can tell exactly when they prayed the sinner's prayer. People who can explain that they are saved by grace through faith. I'm thinking of people like me and you. People who are members of churches just like Christ Church Forward. We may know what it says in the textbook. We may be, if I can put it this way, card-carrying evangelicals. Our systematic theology may be as sound as a pound and yet we can actually be living quite differently. Functionally, we can be living 
just like the disciples of John the Baptist who took something from the old covenant and wanted to add it to the new covenant. Saying that Jesus' death was not actually enough. And to say that, says Jesus, is disastrous. This is a gospel issue. And so Jesus said, verse 16, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse. My, my wife Caroline is a very fine seamstress so I tend not to do any sewing these days. But I'm not a complete buffoon with a needle and thread. But this is not a sexist thing, it's just that she's better than me, okay? That's all I'm saying. But I'm not a complete buffoon with a needle and thread. My mum taught me how to sew on buttons, how to darn socks, how to turn up trousers. That was really important for me because I never really grew very big. That sort of thing. I learned how to do those things. And indeed, there was a time in my teenage years when I was even happy to sew. Now, please don't get the wrong idea. It wasn't a strange phase I was going through. It was, it was back in the 70s. I know, I know you don't believe that I'm that old, but it was. It was back in the 70s when it was really trendy to have patches on your jeans, whether they had a hole in them or not. Do some of you remember that time? My big brother David had patches on his jeans, and so I wanted patches on my jeans. And so I learned how to sew. And I cut up a really old pair of jeans to sew a patch on my nearly new pair of jeans. And I quickly learned that the patch had to be an old piece of denim. Do you know why? I know many of you do, but just in case you don't. These were the days when jeans didn't come pre-shrunk. It was always a bit of a danger buying your jeans in those days. You'd buy them and you'd have to think they're a bit big and they're going to shrink. If you bought them the right size, it was very uncomfortable after that. But they came before they became, they, were, they weren't pre-shrunk, you see. And so to have shown a piece of unshrunk denim material onto an old pair of jeans would be disastrous. First time they went in the washing machine, the patch of new denim would shrink and so rip the jeans and then you really would need a patch on them. You'd have to start all over again. Now, that is the picture here in verse 16, I mean, put in up-to-date language. Of course, Jesus isn't putting John's disciples through a crash course in needlework. He's making the point that you can't combine old and new, and that if you do, it will all end in tears, or tears, depending how you read it. I'm trying to make it interesting for you. (laughs) Now here's the point. Fasting for sin belonged to the old covenant. Again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying there's no place for fasting in the new covenant, but fasting for sin belonged to the old covenant. In Christ, that is gone. And Jesus is saying to try and put old and new together are not only incompatible, but Jesus says it is catastrophic. Now, if the example from needlework doesn't connect, Jesus takes us to the vineyard and the world of winemaking. Does this connect a bit more with you? Verse 17. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, talk of wine and wineskins may seem a little strange to us, but we're very familiar with the concept. 
I still remember when my dad got into beer making, when home brewing kits were all the rage. Remember? I mean, you still get them now, but it was all the rage at one time. I think, again, it was back in the 70s. Oh, I've had a lovely trip down memory lane this last week in preparing this. Dad kept a number of gallon-sized demijohns in our, in our outhouse. You know what a demijohn is? Big, big, you know, but gallons, obviously a gallon-sized container. Now, at the top of each demijohn was a little U-bend airlock which allowed the gases from the fermenting brew to escape and it had a little bit of uh, water in it so nothing else could get in. I spent hours watching the brew fermenting. What a sad man I am. (laughs) It was fascinating. Did you ever do this as a kid? It was fascinating to watch each little bubble of gas pushing its way through the water in the U-shaped airlock and pop out and then wait for another one to come. It was great fun. If ever you didn't have something to do in the school holidays, half-term is coming up, you'd just sit in the outhouse and watch them go through. And I also remember that. I remember also hearing stories of people who didn't have the right equipment and went into home brewing. Do you know what happened? They put their brew in an airtight container. And yes, you can guess it, because the gases, yeah, the, the, the glass went everywhere and beer all over the floor. Because beer and wine ferment you need to let the gas escape or brew your beer in a container that has some give in it. I can't believe that here I am, a vicar in the Church of England, telling you how to (laughs) brew beer in the sermon. But actually, that's the picture here in verse 17. New wine needs to go into a receptacle that expands. Old wineskins become hard and they have no give in them. So if you put new wine, which is fermenting, into old hard wineskins, the old wineskins burst and your wine is lost. But put new wine into new wineskins and, end of verse 17, both are preserved. Both the new wine and the new wineskins. Now Jesus gives these two illustrations to make one point and it's very simple. Old and new don't go together. Not just that they don't go well together, they don't go together. And if you try and combine old and new covenants, you have a disaster on your hands. Now notice what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 16 before we move on from these verses. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth. No one does that when they're mending their jeans. And beginning of verse 17 People don't. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. People don't do that. And so if you know from everyday life that it's foolish to put old and new together, and if you know from everyday life that when you do put old and new together that it ends in disaster, Jesus says, for goodness sake, don't do it with the things of God and the old and new covenants. That really would be stupid and disastrous for your soul. And that is what the English reformers knew 450 years ago. That is why they gave their lives to avert a spiritual disaster. And that is what we're talking about tonight. A disaster that the disciples of John the Baptist were heading for as they continued to fast for sin. Because as they continued to fast for sin, they were saying, either we don't need you, Jesus, because we're going to do it this way, Or they were saying, well, we'll have you, Jesus, but we need to do something as well, don't we? Which is a denial of Jesus, either way. Yes, they took something that was good from the old covenant and now they were trying to incorporate it into the new covenant. 
Yes, in the Old Covenant, the Jews were to fast and mourn out of a concern for sin, out of a concern that their sin left them dislocated from God. Fasting and mourning was a good thing. Jesus isn't saying the Old Testament is bad. He's just saying that he is the fulfilment. In fact, he uses that word in, you don't need to look it up, Matthew 5, verse 17. When Jesus came, he had fulfilled those laws. There was no longer any need to do something because you were dislocated from God, because God was right there with them. He had come to deal with the very problem of sin separating us from God, so fasting was no longer needed. And this is the crucial point. If they continued to fast for their sin, if they continued to fast to get them back to God, they were saying that Jesus was not the answer, or that he was only part of the answer and that they needed to do something more to get them back into the presence of God. And that is a denial of the gospel. It is a denial of what we've been singing in virtually all our songs tonight, Christ alone. That is the issue here in these verses. That was the issue in the continental and English reformations. And desperately, it is still an issue today with Christians with evangelical Christians whose heritage is the Reformation. But listen, because our hearts are so sinful, we will always be tempted to move away from the gospel of free grace and of Christ alone. And we will always want to do something ourselves. Because the gospel of free grace leaves me totally in God's debt. And when I'm fully in his debt, he can ask anything of me. But you see, when I've added something to my salvation, well... I still have a little bit up my sleeve. He can't ask me to do anything, can he? Because I contributed in some way. Do you see the problem? Now, while the issue for us is probably not the issue of fasting, let me tell you how we try to combine old and new today. I'll just give you two examples, and there could be many more as well. First, how we misuse the language of the temple in the Old Testament. You may have been to a church service and heard the leader of the service say something to this. Welcome into the house of God. You ever heard somebody say that? Now, the house of God is a title given to the Old Testament temple. The temple was the place that you would go to to repair your relationship with God and to meet with God. This isn't just a matter of semantics, remember. This really matters because the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the temple. You can see that in John chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus is the temple. I come to Jesus to repair my relationship with God and to meet with God. The temple in the Old Testament was always, always pointing me to Jesus, which is why there is no temple now. Have you ever thought about that? Isn't it remarkable? Judaism needs a temple to do sacrifices, but they don't have one. Isn't that remarkable? The temple is finished because Jesus has come. And this is the important thing. This building is not the house of God. It's just a building. It's a very useful building. It's been well maintained. The pillars are fantastic. Everybody mentions the pillars. They are great. It's a great building. It's an excellent building for us all to be able to meet together in one place. It's a great rain shelter. It keeps the rain out, except when the robbers keep stealing our lead. But most of the time it keeps the rain out. But this is not the house of God. And no church building is the house of God. And if I think it is, this is the point. I will begin to think that I can bypass Jesus. 
People go into a church building when it's empty and quiet and they say things like this. Ah, I could feel as if I was in the presence of God in that building. It sounds innocent. It is terribly dangerous because that is the Old Testament idea of the temple. Listen, a church building cannot bring you into the presence of God. Of course, it may be an excellent place to escape the hustle and bustle of life. It may be that in this building, when there's no one else here, it helps you to concentrate. It might help you to have some uncluttered space to think about Jesus and the Gospel. That's terrific. And in that sense, there's nothing wrong with saying, I went into a peaceful, quiet place and it helped me. But please do not think for one minute that the building helps you to come into the presence of God or can make you closer to God. And it matters because that is a denial of the gospel and of Jesus alone bringing you into the presence of God. And the real danger is you may think that you can bypass Jesus because you can come into this quiet building and just be in God's presence. What do you need Jesus for? It's when people get it wrong that they get upset when certain things are done in church buildings as well. If you think this is the house of God, you won't want us to do anything but keep it immaculate and spotless. Let me ask you, how would you, and and I'm not sort of prophesying anything here, don't read into this folks, how would you feel if we removed the pews and played badminton in this building during the week? It would be enough to give some people a heart attack because they misunderstand the gospel. And they would get very annoyed with Christians who suggested it. Some might be feeling annoyed with me now for even suggesting it. John's followers got annoyed with Jesus' disciples for not fasting because they thought that was important in order to meet with God, do you see? That's what happens when you mix old with new. But apart from getting annoyed with others, the real disaster is when people come to a quiet church building to get close to God, they won't go to Jesus. Let me ask you, where do you go to get close to God? A building or Jesus? That's the first example of trying to mix old with new. The second is how we misuse the language of the Old Testament priesthood. The book of of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. The priesthood in the Old Testament is always pointing to Jesus. It is fulfilled in Jesus. Again, Matthew 5, verse 17. He is the fulfilment of the law. It's always pointing to Christ. Whenever you read in the Old Testament of the priesthood, think of Jesus. You will either find bad priests who are a negative example of Jesus or good priests who are a good example of of Jesus. But all of them stand between God and the people. And they are an intermediary. I am not a priest in that sense. Ministers do not stand between people, the people of God and God himself. And that was one of the great issues the reformers had with the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church you have to go to the priest to get access to God. You, you will know, some of you have come from that stable, the priest dispenses the means of grace, which is a misnomer in itself, but you have to go to the priest for baptism and confession and confirmation and communion and marriage and the last rites, and those are the ways you receive the grace of God. That's what's so bad about it. And so the priest is your way to God. But that is a disaster. 
Do you see it is mixing old with new? For the Gospel says that in Christ you have access to the Father. You don't need any other intermediary. But even in evangelical circles where people have no particular Catholic background, I find people with this way of thinking. And so they say to me, Vicar, will you pray for me because I know your, uh, God will listen to your prayers as if my prayers are more acceptable to God. I'm not a priest. I don't stand between you or anyone and God. Now don't mishear me. Yes, of course we are to pray for one another. But asking the clergyman to pray for you because you think he has special access to God is a denial of the gospel and it is an affront to Jesus. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who has special access to God and through his death on the cross he has opened the way to the Father. And how do you know if you're combining old and new and trying to put them together? You'll get upset if the clergyman isn't dressed like a priest in special clothes. That's why it mattered to the reformers what clothes the clergy wore. That's why I don't want to wear clothes that suggest I'm any different to any other Christian. I might wear clothes that make me look old, but that's just because I'm old, okay? It's got nothing to do with anything else. Using the language of the priesthood for a person, you see, is very unhelpful. But in these past years, it has started to happen not just with clergymen, but in evangelical circles with the worship leader. Have you noticed this? In some churches, it is the worship leader who is the new priest today, the person who stands and leads the singing. Perhaps like me, you've been in services where you've been told that through a prolonged time of singing, the worship leader will, here's the phrase, lead us into the presence of God. That is very unhelpful language. It is the language of the Old Testament priesthood. And here is the danger. If I think the worship leader takes me into the presence of God, then I need to keep coming back to the worship leader in order to come into the presence of God. And what about Jesus? Jesus alone leads you and me into the presence of God. And so again, let me ask you, Who do you believe gives you access to God? A minister, a musician or Jesus? Now look, I could go on giving you examples but do you see how we bring the language of the old covenant and mix it with the new and how very dangerous it is because it undermines the gospel and it potentially bypasses Jesus because if somebody else can take me into the presence of God, I don't need Jesus or it supplements Jesus which is equally as bad. It says Jesus couldn't do the job, I need someone else to help him. But Jesus is the fulfilment of the law as he himself says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 he is the temple, he is the priest he is the sacrifice, he and he alone brings me into the presence of almighty God. And as we close, that is brilliantly demonstrated in the incident that Matthew records for us in verses 20 to 22, which we'll look at now. You see, last week, if you were here, we saw how Matthew constructs his gospel. And I won't go through it all again, but we saw how Matthew records a little section of teaching here in verses 14 to 17. And then the the stories afterwards explain that teaching, fill it out, demonstrate it for us. Last week we saw from verses 14 and 15 that Jesus turns 
mourning into laughter. And then to illustrate that, do you remember Matthew took us to a place of mourning, to the funeral of a little girl in verses 23, 24 and 25. And when we saw Jesus raising the little girl from the dead, we saw how there was no more mourning in that, that home and only laughter, do you see? The teaching in verses 14 and 15 is then illustrated brilliantly in a story, in a true incident in, uh, that follows. Now, having looked at verses 16 and 17 in the issue of trying to combine old and new, look with me now at how that is illustrated in verses 20 to 22. It's the story of a very poorly woman. Verse 20, it's uh, the story of a woman who had bled for 12 years. Do you see it there? Now, I've been thinking about this week and I I suspect only women in the congregation can really sympathise and fully understand the horror of this woman's condition. To have significant gynaecological problems for that long, well, I can't begin to understand, can I? That on its own is bad enough, but the Old Testament law tells us this woman's condition left her unclean, and that's the key thing. As far as the old covenant was concerned, for 12 years she'd have been considered an outcast. For 12 years she'd have been unable to touch anyone or be touched without making them unclean. And crucially for us this evening, for 12 years she had been excluded from the temple and excluded from a relationship with God. She is, of course, a picture of everyone who is without Christ. If you want to look it up sometime, you'll see that Mark tells us that she'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had trying to be cured. The point is clear. Money and medicine can't make me right with God. But quite deliberately, Matthew doesn't give us that detail. Indeed, his account of this incident is remarkably short of detail and that is because Matthew is doing one thing. He is going to show us how old and new can't be combined and so there is only one detail he gives us and it's there in verse 20. This woman touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. Her thinking, verse 21, if I only touch his cloak... I will be healed. Now the word in the original, the cloak word there in the original, tells us that the woman touched the tassels on Jesus' cloak. That's the detail Matthew doesn't want us to miss. And I would guess that the tassels on a cloak mean very little to us, but to a Jew, tassels are oozing with significance. Uh, Just keep your finger in Matthew 9 and flip back to the first of those two readings that we had in Numbers uh, 15. Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15, page 153. And we're looking for the word tassels. Page 153. Numbers 15, verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at and so you'll remember all the commands of the Lord so that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. Then you'll remember to obey all my commands and you'll be consecrated to your God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, verse 41 is very important because verse 41 is the gospel. The Lord brings you out of slavery. 
not my efforts, not the law. The, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant have the same gospel. We are saved by grace. It's not a different gospel. The law taught that. And the tassels on a Jew's cloak were there to remind them of God's law. The law that always pointed to Jesus. They were to remind them of all the commands of the Lord in the Old Covenant. And so as this woman reached out to touch Jesus, as we go back to Matthew chapter 9, as this woman reached out to touch Jesus, she reached out to touch the tassels and she was healed. And here's the question Matthew wants us to ask. What made the difference? What was it that transformed her situation? What brought her life? Jesus or the Old Testament? We don't have to guess, do we? Matthew chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. What made the difference was not God's law, but faith in Jesus Christ. Attempting to keep the Old Testament law could not cleanse her. Do you not think that in the 12 years that had passed, she hadn't tried to do that? Of course she had. What cleansed her was trusting Jesus, the new. Imagine meeting this woman later that day. She'd be a completely changed woman. Wouldn't her face be alight with joy? Wouldn't she now be alive that her burden had been lifted after all those years? The the relief of being free from the suffering of 12 years of bleeding, 12 years of pain, 12 years of being considered unclean before God. 12 years of being separated from the Almighty God. Was it the Old Testament sacrifices that had dealt with her problem? Was it visiting the temple that had made her clean and able to enter the presence of God? Was it going to a priest that had given her access to God? No. One thing had transformed her. She'd met Jesus in Christ alone. She had no need now for the old covenant. It's all gone in Jesus. Once the new has come, we don't need the old. Indeed, old and new don't go together, verses 16 and 17. But here's the question for us tonight. Are we living that? Are you living that? Am I living that? Are we living as if Christ alone brings us into the presence of God? Or are we looking for all manner of other things to bring us into his presence? Are we living as if it's Christ alone or do you feel closer when you've done certain things? Are you dragging the Old Testament, the Old Covenant promises and trying to combine them with the New? It really matters. That's why the Reformers fought for this and died for this. Because whatever I call myself, even if I call myself an evangelical Christian, even if I know the doctrine, if actually I am living as if the thing that really gets me into the presence of God is Jesus and something else, then I'm denying that Jesus was enough. And that is a terrible thing to say. Let's pray together.